Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we're simplifying the good life. I'm Guthrie Straw. And I'm Armando Luna. We're broadcasting from Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. We cover bicycling, trains and transit, infrastructure, adventures, and today we chat with Devery Sheridan. That's right. Yeah, we met Devery. Um, well, I think I actually had met him before, but uh, it was on the... Oh, gosh, what was the name of that ride, Guthrie? The Cranksgiving Ride. Cranksgiving Wait, Ride, thank maybe. you. Yeah, that was a, it was a super fun ride, um, but Devery was on it, and I believe... Uh, he and Aaron and Joan got to chatting, and we issued him an invite for the show. So I'm excited to talk to him. Uh, welcome, Devery. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. T- uh, tell us where you are right now. You said you're not in Portland right now. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I have spent most of the most of my time since 2015 living in Portland, but um, school finished up for me in December, and. I guess technically when you finish school, they evict you. So um, <laughs> I moved back in with my family. That's actually not my joke. That's a joke a friend came up with. But um, I moved back in with my family in, in late December. But I my heart is in Portland. Um, like, I, I have ju- just a lot of friends there. So I'm currently trying to move back as soon as possible. Where, where were you in school? Oh, I, I went to Reed College. And I okay. graduated just a few weeks ago. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. But yeah, and, and I guess right now I'm living with my family in Yonkers, New York, which um, it borders New York City to the north. How, how would you compare Yonkers to Portland, Oregon? It's definitely way harder to ride a bike here. Also, like, I don't know, like, I guess there might be some social differences. Like, I guess people in Portland are are a bit more laid back, although they might also be a bit more socially reserved in some circumstances in Portland. But I guess with regards to to cycling, like one of the most difficult things about living in Yonkers, New York, as a person who rides a bike primarily for transportation is that like, I mean, first of all, there's not really much in the way of bike lanes, but the most difficult thing is biking east-west because the pretty much the only roads that go east-west in Westchester County are big, like multi-lane roads with like 40 mile per hour speed limits. And part of that is because the way neighborhoods are designed, like they're kind of, it's kind of like the neighborhoods are enclaves and there's very few connecting roads. And if there's very few connecting roads, most of them are going to be ma- like major through roads. And also like the, the road quality in Portland is like a lot better. Like there's fewer potholes. I'm not just trying to trash where, where, I, where I grew up, but Portland, I mean, it's definitely one of the highest like bicycle mode share cities in the United States for a reason, even though, you know, it could, it could be a lot higher. And also, like when I when I was deciding where I wanted to go to school, I just wanted to get as far away as possible. Um, just that you know, I liked that idea of being independent. You know, I, and I've made like so many so many good friends in Portland. So yeah, I guess those are a, a few differences. And speaking of some of those differences, they're a bit related to what you were studying in school. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so, I guess. At my school, um, like in order to graduate, you have to write an undergraduate thesis. Over the course of a few months, I decided to write my thesis on the implementation of the 2030 um, Portland Bicycle Plan. It was unanimously adopted by the city council in 2010, and it had a few goals. Like, kind of like the top line goal was 
the city of Portland wants 25% of trips to be done via bicycle in the year 2030. Um, I don't know. I, I actually, I would have to make sure that I clarify something. I don't know if it's um, 25% of trips under three miles or if it's 25% of trips in total. Cause like there are some trips where, that are longer where it might not be feasible for some people, but generally the city of Portland wanted 25% of trips done by bicycle by 2030. And in pursuit of that goal, they wanted to build, I think it was 684 miles of new bike lanes. Given Portland's reputation as like kind of like the most bike friendly city in, in the United States, at least of like the large cities, the largest city cities, I was kind of interested in the fact that at the halfway point, because like we're just after the halfway point of that 20 year time period, um, they were lagging behind a bunch of their goals. So I think in 2010, when they adopted the 2030 plan, bicycle mode share was about 6%. And, you know, there were years, some years where it creeped up to 7%, but it's still around 6% in 2022. Although I guess I wrote it in 2021. I also think that um, they had only completed about something like 30% of the new miles of bicycle infrastructure that they had plan to do if they were going to evenly distribute the development over those 20 years. So, you know, they would have had to do like 340 miles, but they only did like, I don't know, 120 or something like that. I was interested in trying to explain some of the reasons why it can be very difficult, even in a city with the reputation that Portland has for being bike friendly, to develop new infrastructure specifically like infrastructure that is kind of anti-status quo, like because most of the transportation infrastructure over the last 60 or 70 years has been developed to facilitate fast and efficient movement of cars. So in a sense, like, you know, if you want to make it safer for people to ride bicycles, you kind of have to take away space from cars. So I was interested in finding some like theoretical foundations to explain some of the difficulties of implementing this type of infrastructure. So like, I was interested, is it the type of policy that makes it difficult? Are there different types of political dynamics that make that, that are difficult when you want to take away space from cars and allocate it to the use of bicycles? Um, and I also wanted to see if there was any like data that I could use that kind of described people's opinions, because especially when we're talking about the actions of like, city officials or elected officials, public opinion matters a whole lot. So essentially, like, um, the way that I wrote it was I looked at a few different public policy theorists. I used that to explain the way that policy affects the type of politics that goes on when you try to build new infrastructure. And then I also looked at the things that elected officials need if they're going to actually successfully successfully follow through on their plans. So one of the most important things that I looked at, um, some of, like you might even know about this, um, there was a poll done of Portlanders where they tried to figure out what people's attitudes were about them becoming a cyclist. So it, there was a classification made of people where there's the strong and fearless, the enthused and confident, the interested but concerned and then the no way no how are you aware of that um classification yeah but thank you also for saying it that we may have some listeners who could use a brush up or haven't heard it before generally so there's this classification of of 
whether or not people see themselves as potential cyclists and the strong and fearless, a, a strong and fearless cyclist is basically a cyclist that will ride on pretty much any kind of road. Like it, it, even if it's a, you know, a multi-lane road with high speeds, like a strong and fearless cyclist might not have much of an issue riding on that road. So generally they can ride in most cities regardless of the infrastructure. An enthused and confident cyclist is generally a cyclist that'll ride in most conditions as long as there's some form of bicycle infrastructure. Like if it's a bike lane or a sharrow, they might be comfortable riding in that kind of a place. An interested but concerned person is someone who is willing to ride their bicycle, but they're very concerned about interacting with motor vehicles. So if someone is enthused, if someone is interested but concerned, they are pretty much only going to want to ride in protected cycle lanes and preferably cycle lanes with some kind of buffer, whether that's um, parking protected buffer or if that's just a completely separated path, like a multi-use path, examples of which are like the spring water corridor or the I-205 path. And then there's the no I know how, um, which is just, you know, anyone who just doesn't see themselves ever using a bicycle for running errands or commuting. Um, and there's always going to be a number of, of people like that. But generally, um, in the survey that was done of Portlanders, 4% were strong and fearless. About 10% were enthused and confident. And then I think a majority, like 52%, were interested but concerned. And I came to the conclusion that that was the most important group that you have to like accommodate if you want to reach you know a very high bicycle modal share and i guess i didn't define it before but bicycle modal share is just the percent of trips that are done by any mode of transportation and i think also in the 2030 plan i I think there was some reference to this to this categorization so in that identification focusing on the folks that were interested but concerned uh your research delved into sort of i think it's described as resistance to the completion of that plan from a political landscape or uh, what are the dimensions of what you were looking into? I mean, different kind of policies are implemented in different ways. Um, And there are some kind of, there are some types of policies that might be easier to implement. So like if you're talking about just building like new roads in an environment where it's already popular and, and normalized to build just more car lanes, then that might not be a politically controversial thing to do. It might be pretty easy to do um, if you have the funding for it. Yeah, so I was interested in, are there differences in policy that determine the optimal way to implement the policy? There's this political theorist who I used for a lot of my work, Theodore Lowy, and he created this classification of different policies. There's distributive policies, redistributive policies, regulatory, uh, regulative policies, and then uh, constitutive policies. And uh, like in my interpretation, transportation infrastructure and policies to build them, they are in the realm of distributive policies. I think that transportation infrastructure is a distributive policy because generally most roads are publicly owned. So, um, and and most land where you could build roads, there's either some kind of public ownership or public like jurisdiction over what you can do with with that land. So it's a distributive policy because the state is deciding to do what it wants with its own land. And there are some aspects of like, if you wanted to take a lane away from from cars on like Foster Road and give it to a bike lane, you might think of that as a redistributive policy because it's redistributing space from cars to bicycles. But 
I consider that a distributive policy because it's the state deciding to do what it wants with its own land, whereas I consider redistributive policies to be more the state deciding what it wants to do with people's own resources, not the state's resources. But I think that there's kind of a perception about public space like roads where people feel kind of like an entitlement to it based on like their behaviors in it. Like um, if the roads are built a certain way, people are going to get used to the way that things are, even though it's not the driver or the cyclist who has like direct control or like direct sole ownership of the space that they're using. They still kind of feel some kind of like expectation of what, what they're going to be able to do like on the roads or in the space that they're using. So you were studying this. So this you're, you're using these theories to study this for the 2030 plan and, and Portland. Yeah. Did you come upon any other cities that are, that were doing something with bikes and, and trying to increase their, their mode that this would also apply to like the reason why I'm asking specifically you mentioned Foster road. And I, you know, I remember Foster road, they wanted to put the bike lanes and they, you know, there are many businesses that said, Oh yeah. Okay. And then many businesses were like, no, no way. And like yeah. one, one in particular, everybody got to know because they just, there was no way they wanted a bike lane and they were, they had signs in their windows. And, yeah, the one with all the signs. Yeah. <laughs> I remember but, um, before the bike lanes and I was like, what is that? Did you see, uh, I mean, did you find about any other places that were similar, similar to that? Well, yeah. So I made some comparisons to other cities. Um, I think the most in-depth comparison that I made was to the city of Amsterdam in the Netherlands in the 1970s. In Amsterdam, there was already like a big culture of riding bicycles for transportation, like back in the early 1900s. But in the 1960s and 1970s, there was a massive shift to using um, cars for, for transportation. And it got to the point where, like, well, there were lots of people dying on the roads. And I think it was in 1971 or 1970, I forget the exact year, but in one single year, 400 kids died in the, in the city of Amsterdam from cars just hitting them. Generally, like, you know, the way the roads were designed there, it was just very chaotic and it was mostly just all space made for moving cars there was kind of, there there was kind of like a social movement that developed in response to that it was called stop to kindermord which translates to stop killing the children um it originated out of out of a newspaper article there was some journalist whose kid died on the streets and originally his first suggestion was well in order to stop kids from dying we need to just put them all on buses rather than having them walking to school a movement started up that said it's not kids walking to school that's that's the problem it's the way that roads are designed that's the problem and, it, and it's the number of cars driving in unsafe ways that that's the problem so there was a massive social movement that that pushed the government to make the roads safer for cyclists and pedestrians and eventually eventually there was like a lot of cooperation between the dutch government and the social movement and and further movement and, and further groups in the future like the Dutch Cyclist Union to make sure that cycling and and pedestrian and, and walking were prioritized um, and that their safety safety was prioritized and I think that there was a healthy relationship that kept constant pressure on politicians to keep on prioritizing that um, and not wane in their in their commitment um, 
And what I identified in that was there were like it, the campaign around children not dying. That's a very relevant campaign. Even if you're not a cyclist, I, most people care about kids not dying. What I got from that is if the city of Portland wants to like fully maximize its bicycle mode share, and if it wants to fully maximize the po- the political benefits of implementing their 2030 plan, everyone in Portland or as many people as possible in Portland need to see um, that infrastructure plan as relevant to them. And that's why I think that the classification of Portland into potential cyclists or country, although like, you know, com- most of the United States doesn't really have very good inf- infrastructure just anywhere. I mean, there are some smaller cities, but it's especially difficult in larger cities. There are always going to pe- be people who are never going to see themselves as riding a bike. And, you know, there's any, people can have any number of reasons for that. So generally, like there's a third of the population that it's not that the, this policy, the 2030 plan is never going to be relevant for. But for the 52% that are interested but concerned, it's very important to build cycle lanes that are very safe, that are protected. And the Portland 2030 plan identifies this in their priorities. Like there's different types of bike lanes. And the purpose of the 2030 plan is to make it so that anyone within a few blocks, I don't know if it's like, if it's defined by blocks or if it's defined as like, you know, half a mile or something like that. But anyone within a few blocks can find some way to connect to all the major routes that get you to all the major sites of employment and business and entertainment and stuff like that. Because if people are going to actually use their bike for errands and commuting rather than just occasional recreation, then the network needs to be useful for them. More specifically, like the way that you get to that is like, you know, you can't have extremely massive bicycle infrastructure in every single road. Like there's kind of like a hierarchy where on major roads, um, you're going to have like protected buffered bike lanes, you know, and roads that would be prioritized for that would be like Burnside or Hawthorne. I mean, ideally in the future, like even 82nd Avenue would have um, like a very robust bike lane to use. And then those major those major bikeways, as they're like classified, would be fed into by like kind of smaller lanes, uh, by, by smaller routes that would be like, you know, they might, that might consist of like Sharrows or other bike lanes within neighborhoods that help people connect to those major, major routes so that they could commute most efficiently. In order for the interested but concerned to feel like they see themselves as a potential cyclist, they need to feel like all those things are in place for them. And the problem I, that I think exists is largely, especially if you don't have a massive awareness campaign about your 2030 plan, people's perceptions of whether or not they're going to be a cyclist are kind of based on their current experiences or past experiences. So I guess the way I might've described it to you in my email to you is there's, there's like this holding pattern where there isn't enough infrastructure in place right now for people to feel like based on their current experiences, they could be a potential cyclist just for everyday errands. So that in turn doesn't create the requisite amount of political pressure on politicians to then follow through on the plan that they already passed. The way like the way that I think you get around that is through a massive public awareness campaign. And, you know, you could either do it directly through the city government, or you could have a collaborative relationship with like 
advocacy groups and like i looked at some examples of like interactions between city government and advocacy groups like you know the southeast uplift coalition and i also looked at um I don't know if I would get into more detail about it, um, but there was like some goings on about the healthier Hawthorne project and some of the decisions that were made about how they were going to redesign Southeast Hawthorne. I guess if I could backtrack a bit, like the reason why I looked at some of the ways of describing different types of policy was I think that there's something about developing infrastructure that creates these specific types of of problems and specifically infrastructure that tries to change the way that people use the roads, like how they commute. If you're just building infrastructure that sticks with the status quo and doesn't change anything, then you kind of don't have to do anything different than what you've done before as a government. You know, as long as you have the funding to do so, you just use the arms of the government and whoever you're contracting with to approve the infrastructure and and build it. But if you're trying to do something different, there's something about infrastructure policy and there's something about infrastructure in general where people get used to people get used to the way things are so i think there's this problem with people getting used to the way things are with the infrastructure that, that they've been using where if they're if they have any problems with you know their experience with the infrastructure like let's say someone's driving a car and there's a traffic jam i think that people's first thought in that kind of a situation is, well, how can we make driving better rather than are there alternatives to driving? So if there's a traffic jam or if there's frequent traffic jams on some interstate or some major road, like kind of a normative response would be, let's build another lane. And there are a lot of, there are some problems with that. Like a lot of like, I guess it's behavioral economists or whatever, or a lot of like infrastructure analysts or whatever, generally there's this belief that if you add another lane, you're going to induce demand. And if you make it easier to drive a car, then you're going to just come into the same problem that you experienced in the first place, where like if you have six lanes instead of five, well, if if you have six-fifths the number of people now driving, then the amount of the number of traffic jams is going to be similar. I think that there's kind of this problem with the distribution of like state resources where the imagination that people have about solving problems in that kind of like political and and like developmental ecosystem most of the like solutions come from making the thing that they're currently doing easier um, rather than thinking maybe we should do something else i also think that there's a big political burden that's placed on anyone who does want to make changes who does want to go in a different direction when it comes to infrastructure policy, because generally like, um, I guess with distributive policies, the way that I looked at it in my thesis, there's many, many, many different ways that a city government or state government or the federal government could, could decide to design a system. And that means that there's many, many ways that whatever they do decide on can be criticized. So, you know, if you have a new infrastructure policy, you could have prioritized light rail or you could have prioritized streetcars or you could have prioritized buses or you could have prioritized bicycles. Like there's many, many, many ways to criticize a new infrastructure policy that goes in a different direction. And that means like that kind of means like if you have a plan where you want to massively increase the number of people using bicycles, like 
people kind of expect a really good argument from you for why that's going to be beneficial. Mm. Um, and there's a problem when like 50% of people don't feel like cycling is safe enough or useful enough for them. Like if, if the interested but concerned class of Portlanders don't see themselves as potential cyclists, then there's not going to be enough political pressure on like who are uh, on city council members or on the commissioner of PBOT, um, the Portland Bureau of Transportation to follow through on the plan that they adopted. I, I've, I've learned a lot from everyone who I worked with because um, it wasn't just me. Like there was my thesis advisor. And then I also learned a lot from um, my orals board. So when I had to defend it, I learned a lot from the professors who questioned me about my thesis and Something that I learned from one of my previous professors, uh, Chris Koska, was like, there's kind of this issue of, and also I think Alex Montgomery, one of my, I haven't ha taken a class from him yet, but he, he might have also talked about this idea. When you have like constantly, a constantly refreshing city council with like elections on like four year cycles, it can be pretty difficult to stay on top of like uh, an ambitious 20 year plan. If you decided that something was good in 2010, if, if you want to constantly be on track to reach your goals, it's almost like that issue has to almost always be like present in the minds of the public and and like whoever's in office. And that's very difficult when you have new politicians coming in all the, all the time and when like city council members are like just by nature of their job concerned with being reelected in the next term. Based on that, like, I mean, also like... None of what I wrote is necessarily like publishable. Like a lot of it is just like, you know, things that I think are true, but I'm pretty sure that like, unless like there's a very, very strong and active conversation among regular people, not just enthusiastic cyclists about, hey, we want to change the way that we transport and, and, and commute and everything. I think that unless you have like that big conversation going on all the time, like you had in Amsterdam, you're going to lag behind your goals as a government. Like the city of Portland has made some progress by all measures, um, pretty much except for mode share. The network is a lot better than it was in 2010. Like there are some very good bike lanes that have been developed since then. But looking at some transcripts, like I, one of the websites that was really helpful to me in writing my third chapter, which was like kind of like the specific analysis of of my like theories and, and the history, like um, Bike Portland was really a re really useful website for me because it had a lot of transcripts of conversations between city council members and bicycle advocacy, advocacy groups or advocates who are like on the bicycle advisory committee. That's kind of the interesting thing too, because like just sort of tying it together, my understanding is Amsterdam had like a, a flashpoint or the Netherlands had like a flashpoint and towards the Bike Portland articles, like we've seen numerous people dying per year i was talking with friend in transit and we were sharing like how did we get into transit and i was like oh well we both knew somebody who was killed in portland's streets a and so in regards to the media awareness you know keeping in mind the election cycles and terms uh it, it sounds like in the world we live in a, a really good long-term psa slash like advertising campaign is the or a way to to both gain awareness and apply pressure. That that's kind of my takeaway. I think, you know, that that's a very good way to go. I think in the 2030 plan, I mean, I didn't necessarily look too deep into like the actual money that was spent on advertising, but you know, I think the money that was allocated towards advertising was in the range of like $100,000 or $500,000 um at the high end and over the course of 20 years, 
that's not a lot or that might have been per year but either way i think like there just needs to be a, an extremely strong conversation that in, includes like people like just the majority of portlanders not just people who are very active in the in the cycling community otherwise cycling is always going to be seen as this somewhat niche thing that isn't necessarily relevant to just your average person or the median person yeah i think that like if the only tool you use are the standard tools of government for like implementing your infrastructure, just like, you know, going through the approval process and having, and and having planners and having reviews and, and like, you know, spending the money to actually build that, like all that stuff tends to work pretty well, more or less for like status quo policy, where you're just trying to build more of the same stuff. But if you're trying to build stuff that could be seen as irrelevant to a lot of people unless they see themselves as potentially using it, then yeah, like it, it can be, it can be pretty difficult. So I, that's why I think there needs to be a massive like public awareness about it. And so in regards to that, I'm going to, maybe this is the hardest question of the night or maybe the easiest. I'm curious what you would make if let's say we have this individual, let's say they're an engaged citizen and they're going to be, you know, in any city, this could be Portland specific, but this I think could apply more broadly. What should a person do on day one? And what should a person do at year five and year 10? So we've got roughly 10 years until the 2030 completion. What could somebody do today, five years from now, and in that 10th year to affect a positive change? So I, I'm guessing, so this is just not any elected, this is just a regular if per, person who wants to help push the city in the right direction. Yeah, let's say a listener or somebody who yeah. happens to overhear what we're speaking about. There are a few things that you could probably do. I mean, just like, if you if you are comfortable doing so becoming active like in like kind of the social cycling community in portland like there are so many rides shift to bikes or bike portland they both have a calendar of rides so just becoming active in the community so you can like talk with people and hear people's perspectives like that's pretty useful you can't go wrong with attending city council meetings just to make sure that you know it's always in the records that this is the thing that people care about so those are two things yeah, I mean, there. I, I guess there's a, a lot of things that people can do. You know, they can also just talk with their friend, talk with your friends who might not ride a bike, but like tell them about why it might be important. There's a reason why the city adopted the plan in the first place. Like it had goals that were like, that, that, it had good goals and the city still wants to achieve those things, at least based on the law that they adopted, you know. You could talk about how air pollution and noise pollution is a pretty negative health impact in cities. And it's not like we're telling people who don't want to ride a bike to ride a bike. It, the problem is that there are a lot of people who feel like they would enjoy it and find it useful, but it, the current system is not safe enough for them. So that so there's just a lot of regular people who aren't necessarily bicycle enthusiasts who would change their behavior if changes in infrastructure were made. So I guess... As an individual, just talking to your friends and family, but also engaging with kind of like the enthusiastic cycling community in Portland so that you can be engaged in a pretty active and stimulating experience and conversation, I guess. Right on. Thank you, Devry. This is uh, super interesting. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's got me thinking and now I have to go back and look some stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> All good. I got the Theodore Lowy link. We'll put that in the blog uh, post. And can you remind us again of the uh, the Facebook group too? You wanted to mention that. Oh yeah, so like um, part of the reason why I've like continued to be so interested in like making like you know cities just more accommodating for human life is like a 
in 2017, I started the Facebook group uh, Maxed Out Memes for Overcast Teens. Most of the people in the group are not teenagers. That's just like, <laughs> that's just kind of the normal name format that was, that, that, that was like kind of used back back around then and like the pun is like maxed out it's a reference to the to the max lines um that trimat runs and then overcast like you know half of the year it's overcast in portland so i i just i just put that in there it's a group that ha- that currently has about 1200 members and people discuss uh city politics uh you know any like new developments in like trimat stuff like that uh there's also just a bunch of jokes too or memes and i have a wonderful team of co-admins uh as bradley bondy xavier stickler manny martinez airline <laughs> christian blaze uh and yeah we it's uh i don't know if you want to talk about any politics or culture in portland that's a pretty great place to go awesome thank you so much cool thanks thank you this was this was great thank you yeah, yeah. thanks for being on I got really interested if he if he talked about the safe streets initiative that popped up for COVID, if he any of that came up when he was doing the study because that was pretty much you know here's here's something we could do for COVID because people can't you know get out and so we're going to close off these streets you know boom and they did it you know and it's still happening I mean there's still I mean people are driving by them but there's still the barricades still mm-hmm. up but it's like that's something that happened within you know within a year mm-hmm. and so it's it's not like you can't get these 50% of interested people interested, right? Yeah, totally. What can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike? I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. It circles around the city lights. For our mail for this week, uh, it was funny because as we were assembling the show notes, Armando and I actually pulled the same article. Uh, it seems <laughs> to be of interest to both of us today. Uh, this Yeah, and, and Joan. Joan had uh, texted us too, I think, about it. Oh, nice. The article is from vice.com titled Mechanics Ask Walmart Major Bike Infrastructures to Stop Making and Selling, quote, Built to Fail Bikes. Um, do you want to take the quick intro on it? Sure. Um, so the article starts off, Mac Lightman has been a bike mechanic for 18 years, and she's seen her fair share of crappy bikes. As the program director for Bikes Together in Denver, a nonprofit that provides bicycles, repairs, and education courses to members of the community, Lyman isn't adopting the snooty tone of a high-end bicycle shop sneering at your 14-speed trek with mechanical brakes. She's talking about the kind of bikes hastily wrenched together out of flat-packed boxes by people with minimal training that mechanics have long called bike-shaped objects. Bikes with misaligned wheels, forks on backwards, and faulty handlebars. Bikes that break after just a few dozen hours of use and that cannot be repaired. I think a few dozen might be generous for some bikes that I have seen. <laughs> yeah, I've never been a bike mechanic, um, but I understand what is being said. Yeah, definitely. I'm ha- I'm happy to see this. Uh, as somebody who's worked in a shop, it always is just kind of a heartbreaker to have somebody come in, uh, particularly that like just got a new bike from one of these locations or Mm -hmm. that has gotten one and then it's like failed quickly and you have that conversation where it's like we you know this is what it would cost to do this this is what it needs and then they look at like the repair cost and they realize it's like about the same or more than the bike would have cost Mm -hmm. i i feel like uh walmart bikes are maybe the closest 
I guess like cars, they're the closest to cars that bikes get, like where you purchase it and then you just realize you have to like put a lot of money into it. I guess nature oh, of the okay. build, but I'm not sure about other folks who have done wrenching, but like sometimes when you walk into, I'm thinking here in the Pacific Northwest, Walmart, but also calling out Fred Myers on their bike selection. <laughs> it's hard to walk by the aisle without wanting to like go find a tool and like make sure that that handlebar is on the correct way and that instead of the brakes facing towards you the brake levers are you know the way they ought to be and it's it's kind of predatory i think is what this article having as a undertone or i'll I'll, I'll put my read into it i think bikes that break the way that walmart and other large organizations sell bikes are predatory uh so i'm happy to see somebody raising a voice up against that yeah, they mentioned uh, they mentioned Walmart, but they say definitely Walmart. They don't want a single Walmart out because it's definitely other uh, big sp- big box retailers too. I mean, let's let's be fair. I think it's all right to single Walmart. Out <laughs> 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 well, it's interesting because you know Walmart. I I don't know how to call it. I'm gonna. I guess I'll call it Walmart because I don't know else how to call their their industry or the the organization. It's, I guess it's known as Walmart, uh, but you know, they, they own like Sam's clubs too, which is the, the membership box store mm-hmm. uh, compared to like Costco, but they bought, they own Rafa now, right? Didn't they purchase Rafa? Oh, I missed that. Tell me more. Yeah. I think they own Rafa now and maybe something else. I don't know. They're, they're sort of moving into, into high end bicycling. Let's put it that way. You can't see it, but my knees were quivering. <laughs> not like oh it makes me weak in the knees but like oh gosh what what's happening it is yeah it's frustrating to to work on them it's frustrating to own them it, it, i can't think of something that like the shine wears off more quickly than a bike that is like at a certain price point but just has so much compromise on it i do i do feel like i'm someone who believes you can ride anything and the story i always like to tell is somebody I knew who rode across the U.S. on a bike they got out of a dumpster. And they just made it work, and it broke down, like, every day, and that was just part of their journey. But if you're getting a bike new, it's good to have it be workable and uh, not like a death trap. So, great. Well, you've reached the end of yet another episode. Thank you all so much for joining, for your listenership, and for your participation. If you like the episode, feel free to share it with people you think would find it meaningful but otherwise we'll be back in two weeks we're moving to a two, every two weeks release schedule that's that's just that's just what we're doing so <laughs> we hope you like it uh we're gonna have some great conversations coming up and we look forward to hearing you next time the sprocket podcast is produced in portland oregon if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and tell your friends about us. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and the Instagram at sprocketpodcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hurt Bird for our headlines sounder. Marcus Darman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot. Wayne Norman, Cameron Lean, Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney, Glenn Kubish, Eric Weiss, Doug Cohen Miller, Chris Smith, Caleb Jenkins, Caleb Jenkinson, JP Keeley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Drew the Welder, Anna, Andre Johnson, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, my co-host, 
Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of They Were Granary. Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Jeremy Kitchen. David Belay, Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel. EJ Finneran, Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skato. Keith Hutchinson, Ranger Tom, Choice Wilson. Ryan Tam, Jason Oftenberg, David Bohr, Todd Grosbeck. Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Chris Barron. Sean Baird, Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite, keep up those bike vids. Dude Luna, hey, that's me. Emma Rooks, Kakao, Philip M. Spartan Dale, Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative Kiwanaw. Sarah G, Adam D, Go Dig a Hole, Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, Oso, Isaac M. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, Aaron G, Rachel Moline. Jimmy Diesel, Christopher Barnett, Jonathan Lee. And our latest sponsor, Hami Romani. And thanks to all of our former supporters who helped us along the way. Now brush your teeth. And go to bed. Go to bed.